This morning's scripture reading is from the 27th Psalm. You can find this on page 394 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided. It's Psalm 27, verses 11 to 14. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. We're concluding our series on Psalm 27 with these verses this morning, which begin with sort of a perfect prayer. Perfect prayer for us this morning. It's, it's a, really a prayer within a prayer, since all of Psalm 27 is a prayer. But these verses especially form a great prayer for us this morning. And this has been some prayer, hasn't it? Psalm 27 has been some prayer. I mean, it's last week someone told me how um, they'd gone home and shared with a friend of theirs who was struggling with anxiety and just overcome with anxiety. And they shared this psalm with them. Not share with them the sermon, not share with them their take on the psalm, but the actual Psalm 27. And the Holy Spirit just rushed into their lives and comforted them through it. And just a wonderful psalm. So first, verse 11 provides this perfect prayer within a prayer for us this morning. So let's, let's start off praying. Pray with me if you would. Teach us your way, O Lord. Father, teach us this morning how to respond to extreme people. We often respond our own way. We often react. But we've seen how that works. Lead us on a level path because of our enemies. Father, we didn't ask oftentimes for an enemy in our lives. In fact, we're a little embarrassed to admit or to even call them that. But if we're honest, that's how it feels. Someone who's opposed to us, for some reason, often unknown. Lead us on a level path. Father, the path of the world is fraught with slander, with gossip, with soiled reputations, with misrepresentation, and the resulting anger that has the potential to take over and control us. So we ask this morning, lead us, Lord, on a level path because of our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first week during this brief series, we talked about preparing for times of extremity. Second week, where to take refuge during extremity. Last week, we talked about how to respond to successful extremity. When God delivers you from extremity, how do you respond to be ready for the next time? And this morning, extreme people. So one of my favorite verses, if not my favorite verses in all of Scripture, is 2 Corinthians 12.9. I don't know if you know this. I'm going to read it this morning. Where Paul says, this. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's a wonderful verse. But I want to take us through the context. What, why does Jesus divinely step into Paul's life and say this? All right, seems like there's probably some big reason. Let's read earlier, the verses before, verses 6 through 8 of 2 Corinthians 12. 
Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or what I say to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So Paul is having these visions, these experiences with God. He rarely talked about them, but he brought them out for a good reason here. Anyway, becoming conceited, prideful, I'm, I'm something special because I'm experiencing God in this profound and deep way. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. See, because Paul wanted to be like Christ. He wanted to know him and, and be like him. And he said, God, I don't take it from me, please, this weakness. But that's when Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says this radical thing. I can boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I can boast about things. About, I struggle with things so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, Paul was given something that was both from God and yet a messenger of Satan. All right, go ahead and wrap your head around that little nugget. All right, <laughs> I didn't figure that out. But he got this to help him rely not on himself, but on the grace of Jesus Christ, I should say, expressed through total forgiveness of sin. And thus, Paul being adopted as God's son was enough. That's enough for him. That's what Jesus is saying. That should be enough for you. You're forgiven completely, and you can be my son, the son of the living God, the son of a father. That's sufficient. Likewise, to keep us from pride, from self-reliance in our lives in general, our Father will package up and send us thorns, weaknesses. In my case, it often feels like an entire thorn bush. Right, it's like, please, just take away ten. I will be good. <laughs> now, there are three kinds of thorns that happen to be near here in this psalm we're reading this morning. Three kinds of thorns. You have character, circumstances, and people. And so we looked at this character a couple of weeks ago. What is potentially your one thing in life that you build your life around? We looked at circumstances a lot, right? These extremities that press into our lives. For Paul, many think his weakness was an eye problem, was uh, potentially conjunctivitis. Thorns often come in the guise of people. That's what we'll talk about this morning. You try to reconcile, and by the way, that's where that term, right? A thorn in my side, right? You know, where do you think that came from? The Bible. It's so cool. You gotta love it. It's a great book. I can tell you, a lot of great things come from this, all right? And, and things, things we experience in life come from the wisdom of Scripture, but I'll move on. But people, you try to reconcile with them. Maybe you even admit fault. You get the log out of your own eye. But still, that person doesn't budge. They're still against you. You ever experienced that? Maybe you're experiencing it now. Now, I've been privileged to serve in three churches in, in the past 10 years as a pastor, uh, First church was while I was going to seminary. The second church was in Florida and loved it there. And now I'm blessed to be here. We want to be here for a while. In each place and context, along with a calling to serve, God has given me a thorn in the form of a person. All right, so he almost never gives me more than one, but almost never there is less than one. 
but every place. So, it could be you. <laughs> I'm throw that out there. You're a gift from God, but I might also call you messenger of Satan. All right, so... I think he's giving me this because he knows that I need this to, to keep from becoming conceited, to stop re- relying just on myself but on him, to know that his grace, his love for me, my being his son is enough. That's enough. That's sufficient. So sometimes the thorn never changed. In one, in one situation, I remember a person just, they never changed. They never buzzed. They just rode me up and down during my time there. Another time, the thorn became, became my brother in Christ and a good friend. His name was Sam. And still another time, I became their friend because it turns out I was the thorn, which is very humbling. I, I, I perceived Sam was sort of passively, aggressively. There was this pattern where I thought they were undermining what I was doing. And so I kind of started to, you know, push back a little bit, and my pushing back was a thorn in their flesh. So it's very humbling. Good lesson. Here's my point. Don't be surprised if you have thorns and they come in the form of people. Now we're going to come back to this passage in a little bit for some of the good, nice, sweet stuff. But let's go on to verse 12 for now. Where David says this, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So we're going to talk here about the nature and danger of going to war with extreme people. Danger of war with extreme people. Because with adversaries, their will is often to destroy. David refuses to underestimate his adversary, and neither should we. And what's so fascinating to me about this verse is what really weighed on David's mind and in his heart what really weighed and pressed in on him about his adversaries, because in the midst of physical threat, physical threat to his being, to his person, David seems equally concerned about what? His reputation. Right? False witnesses have risen against me. And what do they do? They breathe out violence. Not they, they're not doing violence. Notice that. But breathing out violent words slanderous words to his good name. You see that in verse 12? Fascinating. They carry swords, and they have visions of his severed head dancing in theirs. They're out for for blood. But David's like, but God, they're telling lies about me and slander. Come on. You can kill me, but not that. And amazingly, what, 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 when I started to think about this and pray about this, is I actually love how realistic this is. It's just so much like a man. All right? And, and you can say what you want about men. You can, let's, let's not now. All right? Let's not do that now. But men, when facing their own version of a firing squad, when they know the heat is on, they realize this is a moment that may define me. This, is, this might define how people look at me, what they say about me. Meant to know the gravity of that kind of moment of a legacy that might be left. So they're concerned, we are concerned about what others might say in such a moment. That's the kind of moment David is in here. He calls this a war. It is a war. 
And that's what actually the New Testament calls us as well. The New Testament is very real about it. In fact, the Apostle Paul failed himself in a similar situation. Look at this with me, if you would. There's a lot of scripture this morning. I'm going to, there's a lot of extra scripture. Don't want to why, maybe too much, but can't go on with lots of scripture. All right, 2 Corinthians 10, 2 and 5. Paul says this. I beg you, he's talking to the people of Corinth, this church. I beg you that when I come and visit you, I may not have to be uh, as bold as I expect to be towards some people. Guess what? Those are some thorns. Some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, I don't know, uh, you may have heard this before, these verses, but you didn't understand or you've heard it applied to all different kinds of things and contexts. But Paul had a very specific application for it here in his life, in his situation, which is strikingly similar to David here in Psalm 27. And that is people within the church whom Paul called super apostles. Because they were rising up trying to undermine Paul. He called them super apostles. They were aiming to soil Paul's reputation. Yeah, Paul, you know, he's kind of an unimpressive speaker. He's, uh, you know, kind of weak. He trembles when he talks. These are the kinds of things they were leaking about Paul when he wasn't around. So Paul finds himself in an awkward position, right? He's trying to care for and protect the church, right? Care for people he loves. You know this feeling if you've ever had an adversary like this or someone who's just out for you. Try to care for people you love and you have this best intention. Yet, Paul is also concerned about his reputation, isn't he? So while it's war that Paul is in for, he is determined not to what? Wage war as the world would. That's what I want us to see here. He's determined not to wage war in that kind of way. He has other kinds of weapons. So my question for you is, what weapons will you use in such a war? Let's call it a war, okay? What kind of weapons will you use? Because people, sometimes even fellow Christians, are going to say things like, well, oh, well, you have to. Right? Yeah, you've got to say something. I understand. I agree. Pat on the back out the door. I don't blame you. Right? You can't let people walk all over you. You can't. You hear this, right? And we end up taking up destructive weapons that we rationalize using and others help us rationalize using. They end up not only hurting other people, but hurting ourselves. I'm going to explain here more what I mean because David gives three weapons. All right? In the last two verses we're going to look at this morning, David gives three weapons verses 13 and 14, that exalt and then display his Savior in the midst of defamation, in the midst of slander. And then I'm going to add a fourth as bonus. So let's look at this. Verse 13 through 14, choose your weapons wisely. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here this morning. Choose your weapons wisely. First weapon, Paul mentions his, his belief. Look at verse 13 here. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. It's remarkable. If you go back and read the gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth, to go back and read them afresh and anew, and at his most public moment, with his reputation literally on trial, 
Yeah, in front of a guy named Pilate, but mostly in front of a public trial, a mob trial. The dude just didn't talk. Isn't it amazing? Like, Jesus said like two answers in response to all these questions he was getting, and they were like two or three word answers. He said, it is as you say. Things like that. Which is basically just being quiet. He says, you know, answers two questions. Then he just, the only other words he says is to comfort his friends. If you look at those accounts. Which fulfills what is prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Like a lamb was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was only possible because he believed he should look upon the goodness of the Lord. In his weakness, he trusted his father to raise him from the dead and to redeem this mess. And it was a mess, wasn't it? Not just our sin and the world and trouble needing to be rescued. Even the people closest to him, his disciples, had abandoned him at this moment. It was a mess. But he trusted his father was going to use this resurrection and the power of it to redeem the situation. Do we trust that? Going back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, you can only deal properly with thorns if you believe that God by his power is going to be more glorified Right? that his reputation is going to expand through the, your weakness. Christ was weak. He depended on God. He believed God was going to redeem the situation like us in our weakness, in our meekness. This can only end well dealing with enemies, with adversaries, if you believe God is going to redeem it in such a way to glorify himself even more. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, there's no reason to go on from here. Have you ever tried to defend your own reputation? Have you ever tried it? I mean, and, and in words of Dr. Phil, I often like to quote Dr. Phil for this one line, how's that working out for you? Right? When you try to defend yourself and your reputation, how does it really work out? And then you're like, oh. You know, and you go kind of one of two extremes. You sort of respond aggressively, respond to one thing and then another and then you, you know, come back with fierce words, and that goes on and on. Sometimes emails are involved. Or the other extreme where you just roll your eyes, you know, and just sort of in that self-righteous way say, you know, yeah, we, we, we know what's really going on here. That's all I need to say. Right, you've got to deal with it one of those two ways. How does that end up working out for you? I mean, you politicking behind the scenes to make sure people don't get the wrong idea about you? Ever done that one? It's exhausting and embittering. Right? You, you, even if you are successful, all right, people get on your side, you know, you clear your good name. Not only have you wasted your time and your energy on self, on you, and oriented yourself towards your own needs and wants, but your victory is won over another person over their words. Right? And what does that really do? It kind of permanently makes you their enemy, right? It, it permanently affects your stance towards them. It embitters you. But what else are you going to do? I think the, one guy who crystallizes this very well is C.S. Lewis. Like a lot of things. He's just, he waves his magic wand. C.S. Lewis. He said this, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son. Not just because I can see it, 
see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. By it I can see everything else. And I think that's David's philosophy here when dealing with adversaries. Everything starts for him with belief. And once that happens, dealing with the problem becomes clear. I'm confident God is going to work this out. Confident I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord again in this, through this situation, and so I know how to deal with it. Everything else becomes clear. Does that make sense? Belief is your first weapon. Second weapon when dealing with thorns is expectant waiting. Look with me in verse 14 where David says this, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. For some reason in the Psalms, I can't believe I'm going to say this, it's written in my notes, so I pretty much have to say this now. <laughs> for some reason in the Psalms, when a brother needs to slow his roll, it's repeated twice. Anyone know? No one knows what that, okay. When someone needs to wait, <laughs> all right, no, well, I tried. All right, it's repeated two times. For the great example is this, is Psalm 130. Verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Okay, waiting for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Okay, I get, there's an analogy there. But then he says it twice. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Okay, that's bizarre. Why twice? Because as Tom Petty said, waiting is the hardest part. Right? It is very difficult. It is hard to wait when you feel you can take control of yourself. And notice, this isn't the kind of waiting where you're waiting around hoping something, anything would happen. It's not that kind of waiting. It's an expectant waiting on a rock and our Redeemer. Back in the day, a watchman would have a shift at the watchtower, right, looking over the plane, making sure no one was coming to attack the city. His shift would have started at night, been over in the morning. The problem was, uh, you know, he didn't know when morning was going to come. So he was confident that morning was coming, right? He'd experienced it for 22 years of his life. He just didn't know exactly when because, you know, they didn't have timepieces. Which is a brilliant analogy here that the psalmist of Psalm 130 gives that we can expect God's goodness in the land of the living. We just don't know when it's coming. Like the sun coming up in the morning without a watch. You don't know if you're up all night when it's coming. But you can be confident it's going to come. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, right? Pray to God for help. Ask Him for help as you wait. Humble yourselves Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So sometimes when I, when I think of this verse, I think, well, yeah, anyone know when due time is? Seriously, does anyone know? So it would be helpful. <laughs> when is due time? God determines due dates. But you can expect the baby to come. Right? It's coming. You don't know when. God knows. So the majority of the time, I really believe that God is calling us to let Him defend our reputation. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 17-19. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave room for God's wrath, for God to take care of things. How often do we crowd God? How often do we want to get our grubby fingers on it? Right? How often do we want to instead crowd others' perception of us or crowd this messy situation right, by getting our hands on it? Where Paul say, no, leave room for God to work here, to bring about justice in the situation. I remember years ago as a youth worker struggling with a parent, all right, a parent of a child who was convinced I was trying to sabotage her son's life. Like we moved the night of our, our, our large group meeting, and she was convinced I, I did this to sabotage, I, I kid you not, to sabotage her son's life. All right, like he was going to do terribly with the Lord because of this. This was going to ruin his spiritual life because we changed the nights. And I, you know, I tried to reach out to her, et cetera, but then she started telling other people. And I remember just in my home crying out to the Lord, Lord, don't you understand what's going on here? Do you understand? This is... From where I was praying, I kid you not, I saw through the, through the window out of the corner of my eye a Rottweiler, which was just going nuts. Uh, it was uh, chewing on a chew toy in our yard. It was chewing on this chew toy. I just asked this question, God, don't you understand? My first thought was, why is there a, uh, you know, an unleashed Rottweiler in my front yard? Uh, this is... <laughs> what is this? Like, this is one of these animals that, you know, chain up or you shoot the tranquilizer gun. And the second thought was, how often do you see a Rottweiler chewing on a chew toy, right? Chew toys are usually reserved for dogs named Muffy and Binky, right? And there's this Rottweiler, this little teeny, like, rubber bunny chewing. And it was clear to me in this moment, I was praying, God was saying something through this. Yes, Ryan, I do understand. The Rottweiler is other people. That chew toy is your reputation. You are, you are truly helpless to do anything on your own. If you try to get in the middle, right, you're only going to hurt yourself and the Rottweiler. Mostly yourself. <laughs> All right? Just wait and let God do what only God can do. Third weapon, get out in front of your thoughts. Get out in front of your thoughts. We see this also in verse 14. This psalm kind of ends in a uh, peculiar way. It's telling someone to wait for the Lord. Right? Let your heart take courage. And the interesting thing here is that is not God speaking to David. David, wait for me. He's not, that's not God, David, uh, God speaking there. And it's clear also, it's not David's preaching to others. Like, hey guys, I've gone through this experience. Wait for God. Let your heart take courage. That's not what's happening either. It's actually David speaking to David. Alright, he hasn't gone schizophrenic or anything. But we see this elsewhere in the Psalms. Most famously, Psalm 42, verse 5. It's also a song you may have heard before. But Why are you downcast, O my soul? So the psalmist is sitting there. He's praying. And he, then he like turns to himself. Right? You don't have to do that. But that's what he does. 
why are you so downcast, soul? Then he actually speaks truth to it. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That actually starts to change his perspective. I'm going to praise him again. Yeah, put your hope in God. Now, when you're in this kind of war, all right, slander, misunderstanding, bitterness, you know what the most vulnerable time is? What the most vulnerable time is for us? 7 a.m. Or whenever it is you wake up. Right? You kind of stumble into your toothbrush. Right? And then you, your mind starts to wind up a little bit. Finally, it goes. But when your mind goes, it has no steering wheel. But oftentimes, in these moments, I find it without restraint, my mind is often wandering to trouble, to where there's anger, where there's discomfort. What's causing me pain? And I start to think about people who are angry, people who are, you know, doing injustice and violence towards me. And I start thinking, man, yeah, but that's, man, they're like this, and I don't like when they do that, and it's probably because they had this childhood. With the, you know, you start going down that line. You ever do that when you wake up in the morning? You can't control your thoughts. It's a vulnerable time. It often sets the tone for your whole morning, even your whole day. I encourage us to follow David's example Talk to yourself before yourself talks to you. And I try to, I know, it sounds kind of like, a, like an Eastern mantra or something like, ooh, very Taoist of you, right? That's not, you know what I mean by that? Like, it, yourself will start talking to you because it just runs unless you talk to yourself like the psalmist here. Get out in front of your own thoughts. Wait for the Lord. Ryan, remember, Put your heart and your faith in God. Wait for Him to act. Finally, fourthly, love. Concentrated and active love. Right? Love your enemies, Jesus said. This shouldn't come as a surprise. That's number four. I'm throwing this in. This is the bonus one. Love your enemies. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. And if you're good at listening to sermons, like you're a pro, you like to podcast, and you you've been in church a long time, you know what's coming, right? Stories about tender love melting the stony hearts of enemies, right? Wrong. That's not where we're going this morning. I'm mixing it up on you, all right? Love as an offensive weapon. I want to tell you a couple stories about that. One of my favorite novels is Alan Patton's Cry the Beloved Country, which is about a rural black pastor, and, and then his son who goes off to live in the city, uh, specifically Johannesburg. It's set, by the way, in the mid-20th century of South Africa. The black pastor, Kumalu, has a brother who speaks powerfully. He's a politician, speaks very powerfully, but has very little depth. So the pastor and his friends start to have this discussion about power. And his friend, the Reverend Misamangu, says one of the most profound things I've ever heard about power. He says this, Yes, that is right about power. But there is only one thing that has power completely, and that is love. Because when a man loves, he seeks no power, and therefore he has power. When a man loves, he seeks no power, therefore he has power. When you love in the face of their slander, their attempts to control, 
When you choose to love instead of trying to gain back that control. You know what I mean by that? You're trying to gain back your control, your reputation, control of the situation. When you choose that, you have all the power because no one can touch you. Not really. Not really. They thought they were taking your reputation because you held on to it. That, was, that meant everything to you. But when you love instead, when you show, no, love, God, and then loving you is everything to me. You have power. During the Second World War, a Lutheran bishop imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp was tortured by an SS officer mercilessly trying to force a confession out of this bishop. The SS officer inflicted increasing pain upon the bishop. And even at its worst, or when it was getting towards its worst, the bishop still did not respond to the torture. His silence infuriated the officer to the point where the officer just exploded and says, don't you know that I can kill you? The bishop just looked in the eyes of the officer and gently said, yes, I know. Do what you want. But I've already died. At that moment, the officer could no longer raise his arm, didn't touch him again, because he had lost power over his victim. He died to self. He died to his person. Died When we die to our reputation and love, we are completely free. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12. Go back to Romans 12 briefly. He says this, verse 20 and 21. He says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Notice that's that concentrated act of love. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil, or, or, sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we get there? By knowing who you are. You are his son or daughter so that you are free and nothing can sway you. I've never known anyone, I've never met anyone as free as Paul. He knew who he was before God and so he freely loved. Right? And his enemies hated it. If you read, he's shipwrecked, he's beaten. They, they hate that he loves like this, that he's so free. It makes them all the more angry. And so you couldn't touch him. You cannot touch this guy. Right? If you said, I'm going to kill you, Paul would say, praise God, I'm going home. Right? If you said, uh, we're going to let you live. Great, great to live as Christ. Oh, right, we're going to beat you. Great, I get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Right? Oh, we're going to imprison you. Great, I'll convert all your jailers. Right? This was Paul. It's like, no, we can't control you. Completely free. He was filled with the love of Christ. That defined him and it set him free. When we love in the face of our adversaries, nothing and no one can touch you. Let's stop there today. Let's pray. Father, whether we're going through it now, whether we're going through it in the future, or whether we're just confessing sin from our past, Father, we, 
we admit that we have botched dealing with people who seem somehow against us, even if it's in our own mind. They might not really be against us, but we've responded poorly. Maybe we didn't say anything, but the bitter thoughts we had. Father, we would love and we pray that we could show your love in such a way that it would melt their hearts. But Father, oftentimes it won't. But even still, you're doing something great. You're making your power perfect in weakness. So help us in this weak time to use these divine weapons you give, to, to have our faith in you that you're going to redeem the situation, to believe that. We're going to look upon the goodness of the Lord through this. Help us, Father, to wait expectantly knowing that you are going to work to let you get between us and the Rottweiler and take care of our reputation. Help us, Lord, get in front of our own thoughts so that our thought life about that person wouldn't embitter us and cause our hearts to turn to stone. And Father, finally help us love with the love of Christ. Father, there's going to be times when we do need to stand up for our reputation. We didn't talk about that this morning. When your name is also at stake and we need to stand up for you. When when at stake is the reputation of the, of the vulnerable and the weak and the helpless, Lord, whether it's our children or maybe others, Lord. And we need to stand up. For the most part, Lord, you are asking us to look to you and let you do the work. So we ask that you would do it. Be faithful, Lord, to your word in this. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.